We are listening to Bible Through the Year 2017, a weekly devotion to supplement the annual Bible reading plan for Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. I'm Justin Wheeler. I'm the preaching pastor at Cornerstone, and this is week 46 of our Bible reading plan. And that means we're going to continue to read through the Gospels to the end of them. And then we're actually going to begin the book of Acts. We're going to be reading Matthew 27 and 28, Mark 15 and 16, Luke 23 and 24, John 18 through 21. And then by the end of the week, we're going to be reading through the early portion of the book of Acts, verse, uh, chapters 1 through 8. So let's introduce the week. Uh, this week, we're going to be reading the climax of all of the Gospels, which happens to also be the climax of the entire Bible. This week, we're going to be looking on as Jesus is betrayed, as he stands trial, as he receives the sentence of death and then suffers that sentence to its finality. But we've come to know as we've been reading that the story of Jesus didn't begin with his birth in Bethlehem and his story doesn't end with his burial in Jerusalem. Three days after dying and being placed in a borrowed tomb, Jesus rose from the dead. So this week we're going to be reading about Jesus' crucifixion, his death and burial, his triumphant resurrection, and then the mission that he has given to his disciples. Now let's turn our attention to something we can meditate on from Luke chapter 23, verses 26 through 43. Now at this point, the trial is over, and the only thing that's left to do is to carry out Jesus' punishment. And Luke chooses to leave out some of the details in how that took place. For instance, <clears throat> we see nothing in Luke about Jesus being scourged, but there's no doubt that it did happen. Mark, Matthew, John, they all tell us about Pilate's orders for Jesus to be scourged before being crucified. And the scourge was a particularly brutal form of flogging that consisted of a short wooden-handled whip which contained several leather straps attached. And at the end of those straps were embedded certain pieces of material, hard material, sharp material that were intended to pierce and grab the flesh and then cause terrible lacerations when pulled away. Scourging was often administered by two men, by two soldiers who would stand on either side of a criminal and that criminal's hands were tied together and stretched over his head so that his entire midsection would be exposed to the abuse of the whip. And the effect on the body was horrific. And it was not uncommon for people to actually die from scourging itself. And then we read about in Luke when Pilate's soldiers are finished scourging Jesus, that they took him into the Roman military barracks. They took him into the praetorium where they proceeded to mock him in front of an entire battalion of soldiers. It would have been like 600 soldiers that Jesus has been thrown into. And what they did to him was they put a scarlet robe on his back. They placed a crown of thorns on his head, and they placed a wooden scepter in his hands, and then they knelt in front of him and they mocked him, and they beat him for claiming to be the king of the Jews. And then when the soldiers had had their fun, they led Jesus away to Calvary's Hill, <clears throat> just outside the city gates. But Jesus is so weakened by the scourge at this point that he's unable to carry his crossbeam. Now, the Roman practice was to place the crossbeam on the back of condemned criminals, and they would place also a sign bearing their name and the crime that they had committed, and that was hung around their neck as they paraded through the city to the place of their crucifixion. And this was done to increase the criminal's humiliation. 
But Jesus is really too weak to finish this journey. And so the Roman soldiers seize Simon and they place the cross on him. And the fact that the soldiers make Simon finish the task is, is not a sign of mercy. It's not a sign of pity for Jesus. Instead, it shows us that the Romans themselves would not even think of carrying a criminal's cross. Crucifixion was a means of harsh capital punishment used by the Romans, but they really saw it as despicable. The very word crucifixion was hardly spoken of in Roman society, in polite Roman society, and it was just a, a horrific thing. No one survived the crucifixion. I mean, the purpose of the cross was a painful, agonizing, and humiliating death, and it served the purpose of deterring others from committing similar crimes. So here's a question. Why did Jesus, the Son of God, suffer and die on a cross? Well, the Scriptures are going to tell us that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. Jesus didn't die for His sins. He died for our sins. He died in the place of sinners to pay the penalty that our sin deserved. He took our place. He paid our debt. He became our substitute. And according to Isaiah 53, the Lord laid on him the sin of us all. You see, in God's righteous judgment, he has determined that the just penalty for sin is death. And that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And we are all sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God. Sin is any transgression of the law of God, and we are guilty because we've sinned times without number. And our dilemma is this. There is no way that we can stop sinning, and there is no way that we can possibly atone for our sins. Our sin condemns us before a holy and righteous God. But Christ's death upon this horrible cross means life for you and me who believe. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, we read, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, because by his wounds you have been healed. You see, Christ died not to pay the penalty for his own sin, but to pay the penalty for the sins of all those who believe. What an end! to the life of Christ. This man who turned the world upside down is dying on a Roman cross between two thieves. This man who wielded supernatural power has now yielded up his life to atone for our sin. This man who once debated and silenced the rulers has now refused to answer their insults. Behold, the silent Lamb of God who willingly gave his life and suffered so that we could be set free. Next, let's turn our attention to something we can discuss from Luke chapter 22, verses 14 through 23. And this really deals with the Lord's Supper. Now, earlier in the week at this point, Jesus had made entry into Jerusalem, not, not simply to eat the Passover, but to be the Passover lamb. He has come into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, not because he needs to be covered by the blood of the lamb, but because he is the lamb whose blood will cover and save all God's people from judgment. But before he gives up his body and blood as a sacrifice, he is going to celebrate with his friends one last time. Now, all the preparations have been made in, in the days leading up to this meal. The room was secure. The Passover lamb has been selected. The food was prepared. And now Jesus and the twelve have taken their seats around the table. <clears throat> and in this particular instance, Jesus takes his position as 
really the host. Uh, he, he takes his position as the one who will lead his disciples through this meal, and that entails him teaching them of the Passover events along the way. The Passover meal was a time when the people of God would look back and remember how God had delivered them from slavery in Egypt. It was a memorial meal. It was designed to remind Israel of God's mercy, of God's justice, and of God's power. And traditionally, this meal would have been broken up into seven different parts. There would have been an opening prayer of thanksgiving that was offered by the head of the house, the host. And there was a first cup of wine that was offered to those at the table. And Jesus does this in verse 17. And then bitter herbs were eaten as a reminder of the bitterness of Israel's slavery in Egypt. Third, a child would ask, usually, why is this night distinguished from all other nights? And then the host, the father of the home, would tell the entire Passover story from the book of Exodus. And then Psalms 113 and 114 would be sung, which is called the first part of the Hallel. And this would be followed by the washing of hands, and then a second cup of wine would be passed. Number five, the, the lamb was served together with unleavened bread. And the backdrop of this meal was explained through Exodus chapters 12 and 13, which described the night of the Passover, the night when God sent the destroyer and the Jews were set apart because their homes were covered by the blood of the lamb. The unleavened bread was a reminder that they had to be ready to leave quickly, in haste, the next morning. Now, the last thing to be eaten was the lamb itself. And then there would be a third cup passed. And then finally, number seven, they would sing again the last part of the Hallel, Psalm 115 through 118, and then the fourth cup would be served. Now, this is what Jesus and his disciples were doing on that night. They reclined at the table, and they had done this before. They had done this a different way, or at least they had followed this script. But tonight, something changes. They had done this many times following the traditions, but at certain points on this night, Jesus changed the script. In verse 19, we read that when he took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and then he gave it to them, and he said something different. He said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this and remember me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, Jesus broke script here. He picked up a thin slice of unleavened bread, and he broke it, and he, and he related it to his body. He told them that it was his body. It was a symbol of his body to remind them of his sacrifice. And he told them that when they did this in the future, they were to remember him. He picked up the cup. It was probably the third cup. And he passed it to them, and he, and, and he told them that this cup marked a new covenant sealed by his blood. In Matthew's account of this, Matthew 26, we read that he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and he said, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Okay, so what does this mean? Well, Jesus changed everything. Not only has he changed the Passover script, but he has forever changed the way we understand the Passover. The lambs used in Egypt and for thousands of years after the Exodus were all pointing to one final lamb whose sacrifice would put an end to all sacrifices. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11, we read this, Every year the priest would stand daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. 
But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The Lord's Supper is for us a celebration of the completed work of Christ. The Supper is a reminder that a new covenant has been struck between God and His people, and it is secured by blood that cannot fail. The Supper is a memorial of the broken body and shed blood of Jesus that purchased forgiveness and eternal life for all those who believe. And each time we eat the bread, and each time we drink the cup, we remember the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are reminded again of His saving and His sustaining grace. Finally, something to pray about from Matthew 26, verses 36 through 46. Even at the last hour, Jesus is still teaching His disciples. And this time He is teaching how to pray in times of trouble. Here He tells them to pray that they may not enter into temptation. Pray for the enemy to be held at bay. Pray to the Father to keep you strong, though temptation is present. Now, in the immediate context, Jesus is probably warning his disciples, especially Peter, against the, th the coming threat of denying Christ and abandoning him. And if Peter was ever going to be serious about prayer, I mean, it, you might expect him to be serious about it on this night because Jesus told him that on this night, before the night was over, that, that he was going to de deny the Lord three times. But this warning had very little impact on the disciples, and before long, they all fall asleep. But in the context, here's what we see about this as it relates to the Christian life. There's a need for us to pray to the Father to keep us from temptation. We need help to live by faith, and our, our help comes from the Lord. Yes, there's need for us to be wise when we face various trials, and there is a need for us to have counselors and accountability as we face temptations, but there is an even greater need for us to pray for God to protect us, to help us, and to keep us from those temptations. And we see an example of this in Jesus' own prayer. He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You see, the temptation for Jesus on this night is to find an easier route. The temptation is to give in to fear and to abandon the cross. But at the same time, Jesus asks for the strength to submit himself to the Father's will. In this prayer, Jesus asks for two things. He asks, number one, remove this cup from me. But number two, let your will be done. You see, Jesus is open. He's completely honest with God. He, he made his desires known, but in the end, he is absolutely committed to the Father's will. See, that's where we need to get to as a people. We need to get to the point that we can grow to such godly confidence and selfless love that we will abandon our own comfort for the sake of God's will and the good of others. So, dear Christian, don't fall asleep when temptation is crouching at the door, but stay awake and pray. Cry out for God's protection. Now, if you want to learn more about Cornerstone Baptist Church, you can find us online at cornerstonewiley.org. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at cbcwiley. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cornerstonewiley. And you can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Google Play to stay up to date on all the new content. Thanks for listening.